Welcome to Episode 3 of Conversations on Modern Slavery. Conversations on Modern Slavery explores the complexity of modern slavery across the world, looking at its drivers, its manifestations, and its consequences. Featuring discussions about the latest research conducted by Free the Slaves and dialogues with eminent experts and frontline practitioners, this podcast seeks to amplify public awareness and galvanize action against modern slavery, providing insights into the root causes, disclosing narratives, and pioneering solutions. Conversations on Modern Slavery is a must-listen for everyone passionate about eradicating modern slavery. My name is Brian Lippincott. I'm the head of communications for Free the Slaves. Today, I'm joined by two of my colleagues, Free the Slaves Research Officer, Dr. Marta Furlan, and Southeast Asia Regional Manager, Ramsey Madriano, to talk about our latest research project exploring the connections between climate change and human trafficking in the Philippines. Marta and Ramsey, welcome to Conversations on Modern Slavery. Marta and Ramsey, welcome to Conversations on Modern Slavery. Hey, Brian, thank you for having us here in this podcast. Hello, Brian and Ramsey, so nice to be here again. All right, so uh, today we're talking about the research project uh, in the Philippines from Free the Slaves, focusing on human trafficking and climate change. Marta, Free the Slaves recently completed a research project on the intersection of climate change and human trafficking in four communities in the Philippines. Can you tell us what led Free the Slaves to conduct this research? What was the purpose of this research and why the location of this research is important? Of course, and uh, yes, indeed, the Free the Slaves very uh, recently completed an interesting research project on the intersection between climate change and human trafficking in the Philippines, which I believe is making a needed contribution to our understanding of human trafficking, its root causes and its drivers. When it comes to the process that led Frida Slaves to engage in this kind of project, I should start by saying that Frida Slaves' mission is to end the conditions that allow the perpetuation of modern slavery. So inspired by this mission, we are interested in research projects that help to illuminate the causes and the drivers of slavery. Now, modern slavery is driven by many social, economic, political, and cultural factors. This can be conflicts, food and water insecurity, corruption, lack of access to education and healthcare, extreme poverty and employment, gender inequality, racial inequality, human rights violations, and as you know, the list could go on much longer than this. Importantly, also these drivers of vulnerability to slavery are not mutually exclusive, rather they can and often do coexist and reinforce each other. However, beside these factors that I was mentioning just now, it is increasingly recognized that climate change also intersects with the reality of modern slavery in different ways. How does this happen? Research on the topic has suggested that illegal activities of resource extraction, which typically rely on forced labor, contribute dramatically to environmental degradation and climate change. And here I might uh, remember the episode of the Conversations on Modern Slavery that we had uh, last time, episode number two, in which we were discussing a research project that Free the Slaves did in Peru, in the Amazonian region, that exactly tackled this issue of uh, environmental degradation, uh, climate change exacerbation, and vulnerability to modern slavery. At the same time, climate change-related disasters create and exacerbate some of those conditions of vulnerability 
that we were discussing at the beginning that expose individuals and communities to the risk of being exploited. Now, proceeding from these considerations, this study that we recently published in the Philippines aims to explore the intersectionality between climate change and modern slavery and better illuminate how climate change and climate change related hazards influence vulnerability to trafficking. In fact, while some valuable studies on this connection between climate change and human trafficking have been produced, as I was saying before, the topic has remained relatively underexplored within the broader modern slavery literature. And if you allow me to add a point in this regard, this is not an isolated lacuna. Rather, it is part of a broader tendency within the modern slavery scholarship to dismiss the forces that underlie, exacerbate and perpetuate factors of vulnerability to modern slavery. To put it in other words, while a factor such as poverty is widely recognized as a factor a driver of vulnerability to exploitation, much less attention has been devoted to identifying the forces that underlie poverty. Now, Brian, as per your question, why the Philippines? Well, the Philippines is a very interesting country because for eight consecutive years, it has been ranked as a tier one country in the uh, US TIP report, the Trafficking in Person report that is uh, released every year. This uh, ranking is a recognition of the many efforts that the government has been making to adequately address human trafficking. On the other hand, however, even countries that are in tier one ranking need to always be aware of how the reality around them is changing, of what new challenges are emerging to make sure that their responses to human trafficking remain adequate and effective. Talking of new challenges, climate change is certainly a major global challenge and the Philippines is one of the countries most exposed to climate change. In fact, according to the Global uh, Climate Risk Index, the Philippines is one of the countries worldwide most impacted by climate change. Then within the Philippines, we focus specifically on uh, the regions of Eastern Visayas, India, Visayas and Caraga in Mindanao, which are characterized by incidents of rapid onset and slow onset hazards, as well as the incidents of human trafficking. Specifically in Eastern Visayas and Caraga, the most common hazards are heavy rainfalls, floods, droughts, rising temperatures, and sea level rise. Typhoons are also very common in both regions with devastating consequences. And during typhoons, rain might fall uninterrupted for up to five, seven days, during which flooding typically occurs. In Eastern Visayas, moreover, earthquakes are also a recurrent event due to the fact that there is an active fault line that passes through this region. Other common hazards that we can uh, recall are landslides, storm surges, tsunamis, and tornadoes. So given these characteristics, we uh, thought that the Philippines and these two specific regions within the country were very appropriate locations, geographies, where to conduct our research. Excellent. Thank you, Marta, for that detailed overview. Um, I want to turn to Romsey now. Romsey, Eastern Visayas and Mindanao face a number of unique political and social challenges. Can you describe the unique situation in these regions in the Philippines and how social and political challenges make addressing issues like climate change challenging? Okay, thank you so much, Brian, for that very great question, uh, which would certainly add more face to what Marta has said earlier. Now, to give you an overview of these two areas, now, firstly, with the Eastern Visayas, this area is really prone to natural disasters like typhoon, 
floods and even landslides because you know if you look at if you look at this area geographically it directly faces the pacific ocean now the destruction caused by typhoon let's say uh like the typhoon haiyan last 2013 it was a clear example which has killed more than 6000 people now you multiply these types of disasters into 20 that's what you can see in this region now these disasters which keep happening and getting worse make it very hard for the region to deal with climate change effectively adding to this problem is widespread poverty with many people relying on natural resources for their basic needs this reliance becomes risky as climate change threatens jobs especially in the fields like farming and fishing that are very affected by changes in the weather now to add to that the situation is even made tougher by the lack of good infrastructure which holds back disaster readiness and response as well as long-term effort to adapt to and fight against climate change another issue is will boil down to political system we have lots of red tape which blocks the easy roll out of climate policies and the necessary allocation of resources for climate action all these problems together make dealing with a climate crisis in in eastern visayas area a complex challenge now brian to go to mindanao this area or island in the philippines has faced lots of challenges both peace climate and also human rights now it has faced a more than three decade long history of armed conflict and fights from different rebel groups to mention like the abu sayyaf group and the new people's army which makes the political and safety situation very very complicated this takes away resources and attention from climate change issues because people and politicians are too much focused on how people in this island can be kept safe now despite the island has been ravaged by strong typhoons like the typhoon washi uh, which has killed more than 2000 people in northern mindanao in 2011 and also typhoon pablo which has also killed around 2000 people um in 2012 in southern eastern mindanao um the political landscape is also a top priority rather than addressing climate change issues there is also a big competition for natural resources like land and minerals often made worse by political and family rivalries leading to harm to the environment now you could also see problems in illegal logging and mining which are big problems especially in the region of caraga where our research has covered two communities as respondents The island is very large and it also has several indigenous population and their fight for recognition of their ancestral land rights and control over resources is a big social and political issue. Now to relate this to climate change as indigenous communities often have special knowledge about local environmental management which may differ to the views of local politicians that you know could end up in opposing views towards development which often leads to their displacement and these people be end up more vulnerable as an effect the way governance is structured is also broken up into many many parts with local regional national actors often having different interests making it hard to come up and carry out, carry out solid climate policies now on top of that economic inequality where wealth and resources are held up by a small group of people especially those who are coming from political dynasty 
can make the effect of climate change worse and stop inclusive actions to fight climate change. Now, this mix of issues make addressing climate problems in Mindanao and also Eastern Visayas very challenging. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ramsey. I think it's really important to understand the context of the research before we talk about what we learned. So that, that was very helpful. Marta, can you describe the key findings of the research in the Philippines? As Ramsey was saying, the regions of the Eastern Visayas and Caraga, like much of the Philippines actually, have experienced a wide range of slow onset and rapid onset hazards over the past decade including heavy rainfall, floods, sea level rise, and typhoons. Now, the communities that participated in our research have revealed that they implement some pre-hazard strategies to prepare for those events. However, a series of limitations affect the efficiency of those preparations. To mention a few of them, preparation is primarily directed towards the mitigation of rapid onset, specifically typhoons, as opposed to slow onset events. Also, preparation is very much dependent on financial resources available to individuals and families, age with elderly people typically being less capable of preparing themselves, awareness, location, and here remote locations, remote villages are less capable and have less resources to prepare themselves adequately, exposure to previous disasters, which leads also to a significant variation in how community members can prepare themselves to a disaster. Similarly, our conversations with community members, government officials, and NGO representatives from the two regions have confirmed that post-hazard strategies are adopted to respond to calamities. However, they appear to be also suffering from certain shortcomings. To give some examples, recovery strategies are primarily focused on the clearing of debris, the distribution of short-term relief, and reconstruction. Conversely, access to food, water, safe shelter, decent work, healthcare and education are not addressed properly. Also, recovery strategies tend to be untimely, unequal and unjust, ultimately perpetuating existing hierarchies of power that result in different recovery outcomes. By this, I mean that what we were told by several community members is that when governments or NGOs intervene in order to distribute post-hazard assistance, some preferences tend to be made between community members. So community members that are richer, are in a position of power, are better connected to the authorities, tend to receive a preferential treatment. These are the community members that are more poor and less connected and more marginalized. Also, recovery strategies fail to provide individuals with the tools necessary to better resist future hazards. And given the recurrence of environmental hazards in these two regions, some families remain in a perpetual cycle of recovery. Here, to give an example, we were told that um, among the assistance that is given by NGOs and governments to the communities affected by climate change, there is a reconstruction financial aid for those families that had their house either damaged or destroyed during the uh, disaster. However, the uh, financial aid the families receive is not enough for them to uh, buy, to purchase high quality materials. So as a result, they end up buying cheap materials and reconstructing their houses with these cheap materials. So when a new hazard will arrive, they are very much exposed to the risk of being back where they were and losing again their house. In the context of these inadequate preparation and recovery strategies, climate change related hazards 
have an adverse impact on communities in Eastern Visayas and Caraga. Specifically, natural hazards lead to a series of conditions of vulnerability that I'm now going to discuss one by one. One uh, is poverty. Natural hazards in Eastern Visayas and Caraga tend to destroy or significantly damage the surrounding environment and infrastructure. Now, while some initiatives are taken by government and communities to address the devastation, time is needed for the environment to be fully restored to its pre-hazard status and for the damaged or destroyed infrastructure to be fully repaired. Therefore, individuals whose livelihoods depend on the environment, for instance, fishers, farmers, miners, and individuals whose economic activities require liable infrastructures, for instance, drivers, but also shopkeepers, find themselves in a situation of economic uncertainty. Those who were suffering from some degree of poverty even before the hazard struck might even experience extreme poverty. Then we have unemployment. People who lose their livelihoods and who cannot engage in their traditional activities are exposed to the risk of unemployment even in the long term. Then we have food insecurity because natural hazards in Eastern Visayas and Caraga typically undermine the community's food supplies and the community's capacity to provide elements that government and civil society organizations intervene to offer relief food banks. These, however, are provided untimely, so it can take up to several weeks for these to be distributed and they are provided in a limited way. So they are provided not to um, ensure long-term food security, but as an immediate uh, need response. As a result, what is typically observed is widespread food insecurity in these communities. And this is especially detrimental for poor families, for families whose livelihoods have been affected most adversely by the hazard, and for families comprising many members, including children, elderly people, pregnant women, and people with disabilities. Then we have migration and displacement. Those unable to repair their houses, perhaps because the extent of the damage suffered leaves no possibility for reparation, might find themselves forced into a condition of displacement or migration. Similarly, people who have lost their sources of income and have no credible expectation of recovering them, as well as no realistic or desirable alternative to make a living, might also be forced to leave their hometowns and look for better opportunities elsewhere. And this could be either a bigger city in the Philippines or even abroad. Then we have the lack of access to healthcare. Hazard-affected communities are also impacted in terms of healthcare because of the destruction of infrastructure and medical supplies and because of the direct damages that calamities have on people in terms of injuries and health complications. While in the post-hazard phase, government agencies and NGOs provide some medical assistance, respondents with whom we um, interacted told us that this is not sufficient to address the community's needs. Also, we were told that uh, post-hazard um, health assistance doesn't include psychological healthcare. So there is a situation of widespread health insecurity and also psychological distress. Finally, we have a lack of access to education. Natural disasters have an adverse impact on education. They destroy schools, they destroy infrastructure, or also schools are often turned into shelters for the communities. And as a result, they remain unavailable for the continuation of class. Here, governments and NGOs engage in efforts to provide school supplies, reopen schools, and provide scholarships to children to incentivize them to return to the classroom. However, uh, communities that we spoke to told us that these attempts are inadequate 
in that after a natural hazard when economic needs are at their highest, children from poorer households are very much unlikely to go back to school because their parents will need their parents will need their support. So what we are observing is a situation of lack of education opportunities. Now, facilitated by this post-hazard multidimensional vulnerability that affects many, well, not most community members, human trafficker can most easily engage in practices of exploitation. In the communities that we observed and we uh, spent time with in this study, modern slavery mostly takes the following forms. Labor trafficking and forced labor, hazardous child labor, sex trafficking, commercial sexual exploitation of children, and online sexual exploitation of children. If I can say a few words on each of these uh, forms of trafficking. When it comes to labor trafficking, this is observed in many sectors of the economy. For instance, a conversation with uh, an NGO in the region told us about trafficking from Easter Visayas to Luzon for people to be exploited in fish farms. In Caraga also, labor trafficking cases were reported in the fishing sector and in agriculture. However, instances of labor exploitation were also reported in the construction industry, which is a very interesting in industry to look at because um, after a natural hazard, the construction industry is booming because there is a, an impressive need for reconstruction, reconstructing houses, infrastructure, public buildings, and so on. So there are many opportunities for people who have lost their livelihoods to join, enter the industry as daily laborers. However, as they do so, they are prone to being exploited. They are not provided with contracts. They are forced to work long hours. They often go unpaid for long times, so or they are unpaid, um, paid very little, and they're not given health insurance or life insurance, despite the many risks in involved in uh, working in construction. When it comes to hazardous child labor, because following a natural hazard, we were saying many families find themselves in situations of extreme poverty, they often decide to send their children to work. Conversations with community members in the two regions of Easter Visayas and Caraga indicated that child work is taking place in markets, department stores, agriculture, fishing, and mining. Children engage in these work activities either as a replacement for school or after school. Also, it is relevant to say that in uh, agriculture, in mining, the kind of child labor that takes place is hazardous because it has very harmful implications for the children's physical and psychological well-being and development. When it comes to the agriculture, for instance, the children are especially used to the husk coconut, while in mining they are used to enter very small tunnels that adults cannot enter and then light the dynamite and make the opening bigger. Then we have sex trafficking that mostly um, involves women and children. So Akir informant that we spoke with shared that the number of people engaged in sex work in establishment increased dramatically following typhoons. In fact, as a result of the devastation of agricultural farms and the subsequent loss of incomes, women migrated from rural areas to urban centers where they ended up being exploited in the sex industry. In most cases, they were promised a decent job in a big city such as Cebu or Manila, but upon arriving there, there was no job and they found themselves being exploited in uh, massage centers, in hotels, bars, or other kind of uh, uh, establishment. Finally, we have uh, the commercial sexual exploitation of children and the online sexual exploitation of children. In the aftermath of natural hazards, 
communities reported instances of minors being trafficked for sexual exploitation in nightclubs, bars, brothels, hotels, and other establishments. The recruitment can occur online or it can occur through friends, acquaintances, or even through the parents. When it comes to the online sexual exploitation of children, this is even more so the case, meaning that we were told that OSEC is a family-based crime. In the most cases of OSEC reported in Eastern Visayas and Caraga, it was the children's parents that were exploiting them, that were posting their pictures or their videos naked online for a financial return. And what we were told is that the reason why OSEC is so widespread is that there is a, a certain tendency not to look at it as a form of exploitation, as a crime, as an illegal activity. And that the benefit of OSEC is that it is a very immediate way in which families can make money fairly easily. That's a very helpful summary of our findings of the research. Can you briefly describe how we conducted the research and how we came to those conclusions? Within the selected regions, we visited four local communities where we distributed 40 semi-structured surveys to community members and we conducted eight focus groups. The questions in the survey pertain to the effects of climate change, coping strategies and vulnerability to mother slavery as a result of those weather extreme events. We also conducted both online and in-person key informant interviews with local and regional government officials, law enforcement officials, NGO representatives and experts on climate change and modern slavery. Then to strengthen further the validity and the reliability of our findings, we also referred to secondary quantitative and qualitative data in the form of statistics, policies and reports. Also, upon completing the data collection process, um, we held a validation workshop with stakeholders based in the region to review the findings, discuss possible recommendations and minimize the risk that researchers would inadvertently bias or misinterpret some of the findings. The stakeholders who participated in this validation process in the Philippines included local government officials, law enforcement officials, topical experts and representatives of local NGOs and international NGOs. And as we are discussing uh, interviews and focus groups, uh, a point that I would like to add is that this research was, as well, every research project that Frida Slaves engages in was uh, informed by our research ethical protocol. So deeply aware of the ethical concerns that are raised by any research that involves the participation of human subjects and that revolves around sensitive topics such as modern slavery, we fully anonymized, anonymized direct quotations of the participants. Only their role, for instance, community member or representative of NGO or government official is explicitly indicated throughout the report. In fact, this specification is believed to be important to better understand local dynamics while posing a risk to the security, the well-being and the privacy of those who generously contributed to this research with their time and insights. Ramsey. As the Southeast Asia Regional Manager, can you talk about how these findings are relevant to other countries and other contexts across Southeast Asia? Now, climate change and human trafficking are big problems that often cross paths, as what has been indicated in this research, but in the context of the Philippines. But also, I think it's good to look at on how these two intersection resonates in the countries in Southeast Asia. 
because when we look at the pattern when the weather gets extreme or sea level rise, people lose their job and homes, making them easy targets for bad people who trick them into forced labor or worse. Now, many times, people have to move to safer places, and during this move, they can fall into hands of traffickers. Also, when the climate messes up farming or fishing, which these industries are everywhere in, in all countries in Southeast Asia, when these people are disrupted, they might be forced into bad work situations to make ends meet. And sometimes, there's not enough water or food because of climate change, and the fight over these resources can lead to more trafficking. Now, when you look at countries like, say, Vietnam, Myanmar, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, and also Indonesia, apart from the Philippines, are among the top nations in Southeast Asia that have been significantly impacted by climate change over the past two decades. Now, this vulnerability to climate adversities enhances the risk of human trafficking as individuals and communities facing climate-induced hardships may fall prey to exploitation and trafficking schemes. Now, I think countries working together can help solve these issues, Brian. Let's say in Southeast Asia, regional groups like the ASEAN and independent human trafficking groups and conferences like the Arab Conference of Chabdai, and the Freedom from Slavery Forum Asia of Freedom Slaves could help address by tackling these linked challenges and issues, making steps towards solving environmental issues and stopping human trafficking at the same time possible. Since we have a clear evidence in the context of the Philippines, I think it would be wonderful to look at how these reality are also happening in some countries in Southeast Asia. Thank you, Ramsey. That was that was a very helpful uh, overview of the region and and how climate change is affecting uh, all of the communities uh, in Southeast Asia. Uh, Marduk, the conclusions of the research led to a series of recommendations uh, for a variety of stakeholders. Can you share a few of these key recommendations that resulted from this research? So recognizing that natural hazards heighten the vulnerability of individuals and communities to exploitation by human traffickers, actions that address climate change-related vulnerabilities become a much-needed strategy to end the conditions that allow modern slavery to exist. In other words, building on the findings of this report that point to a connection between vulnerability to climate change and vulnerability to modern slavery, we suggest that actions capable of strengthening communities' resilience vis-a-vis -vis the adverse impact of climate change are fundamental to ultimately strengthen communities' resilience to modern slavery. Now, as you were saying, we conclude the report with a series of uh, recommendations for the government, NGOs, and community leaders. To mention some of them, when it comes to the Philippines government, we are uh, suggesting to strengthen the capacity of local communities in hazard-affected areas. So in the barangays most exposed to climate change, the government should devote more resources to building the capacity of local communities to deal with natural calamities. Specifically, it should build their capacity to adequately prepare for natural hazards beyond securing food, water, and protecting houses. It should also build their capacity to respond to natural hazards promptly and effectively across different affected sectors, for instance, healthcare, economy, and education. Another recommendation that we propose and we address towards the government to enhance the quantity and the quality of post-disaster assistance 
So following natural hazards, the government should improve the quantity and the quality of assistance. Recovery should include cash for work programs for affected farmers, fisherfolk and miners. Financial assistance for housing reconstruction and other needs, scholarship and supplies per student, and holistic healthcare that includes men mental healthcare as well. Distribution processes, moreover, should be equitable, that is informed by factors such as family size, gender and disabilities, and they should be just, so implemented without discrimination. Another recommendation that we addressed to the government is to introduce modern slavery considerations in sustainable development programs and climate change policies. So the government should embrace a whole of government approach whereby the conditions that sustain vulnerability to modern slavery are addressed through intervention in different policy areas. Driven by this approach, it should introduce modern slavery considerations in the formulation of climate change solutions and developmental programs. In other words, the government should add a modern slavery lens to developmental policies and climate policies rather than treating them as isolated matters. However, the responsibility for addressing this intersection between climate change and human trafficking clearly does not fall only upon the government's shoulders. Rather, each uh, member of society should make a contribution to it. When it comes to NGOs, for instance, we suggest that in hazard-prone barangays, development NGOs should conduct skills development workshops that prepare people to occupations in non-climate-sensitive sectors. They should also conduct workshops on climate-smart agricultural practices, such as beekeeping, which helps mangroves grow into a barrier against plants. Finally, development NGOs should help communities to minimize the impact of hazards by diversifying and planning livelihood activities. Here, a useful tool, for instance, that was used in other regions is the seasonal calendar, which displays each season's weather characteristics with associated risks and opportunities. Also, anti-trafficking NGOs should play their part. They should conduct awareness-raising campaigns on the intersection of modern slavery and natural hazards. Here, special attention should be devoted to those sub-communities that are more exposed to the adverse effect of calamities and therefore are at greater risk of exploitation. For instance, as we were mentioning before, farmers, poor households and children. Importantly, awareness-raising campaigns need to be conducted before calamities occur. In fact, because hazards disrupt all public activities, conducting these awareness campaigns exclusively in the post-hazard phase would be too little too late. Finally, we advance a series of recommendations for community leaders. Religious leaders, business leaders and educators should capitalize on their influence to condemn harmful cultural norms that typically prevail in hazard-affected and poverty-stricken communities, such as those norms that encourage children's engagement in labor and in the sex industry, especially OSIC. Community leaders should educate families on the negative effects of hazardous labor and sex trafficking, should deter parents from forcing their children out of school and into exploitation, and should encourage alternative strategies to cope with adverse effects of calamities. Be uh, besides this, in hazard-affected barangays, community leaders should promote a culture of solidarity among community members. However, contrary to what is often observed, solidarity should not encourage people to justify those neighbors, those friends, those relatives who adopt negative practices to cope with natural hazards, for instance, sending their children to work. Rather, solidarity should encourage people to come together and cooperate to better deal with the hazard. For instance, initiating a joint saving scheme to support 
reconstruction at the neighborhood level. Thank you, Marta. That was very helpful. I'm going to go ahead and transition to Romsey here. Romsey, what are the next steps for Free the Slaves as we work to turn these recommendations into action? Now, two things, Brian, that I have in mind. First, in the Philippines, we now have the opportunity to make use of the recommendations in this research to become actionable items where we can create local committees composed of CSOs, academe, and most especially the local government units to make a comprehensive plan that will help capacitate stakeholders involved in updating local disaster risk reduction management policies and work plans. And also, this could help identify local village leaders to be frontliners in updating the method of identifying vulnerable populations to disasters as potential victims of exploitations. Through this, we can make a cohesive action based on research that influences policies that could end up with programs and projects that are effective. Now, at the regional level, I think to conduct this research per country in Southeast Asia to see specific situations similar to the Philippines research, we could come up with an understanding and with a recommendation that is 100% adaptable to specific country context. And that will be extremely great. We could have a bird's eye view on each country, which can help decision makers and policymakers for each country to come up with informed decisions as to how they could position policies and programs that could see the intersections of climate change and human trafficking. Excellent. Thank you so much, Ramsey, for that uh, overview of the next steps as we work to implement the findings from this research. So Marta, in terms of FTS's research program, what are the next steps in terms of research on climate change, modern slavery, and human trafficking? Yes, so, uh, thank you, Byron, for this uh, question that complements what Chauncey was uh, discussing from uh, his position as regional manager. Following this research, climate change certainly remains one of the topics at the heart of our research interests and one of the topics that will continue to inform and guide our free slaves research agenda. I think one thing that would be very interesting would be to expand, as Ramsey was suggesting, the scope of this research and engage in a comparative analysis at the regional Southeast Asian level. As Ramsey was saying before, human trafficking, climate change are transboundary issues. So I believe it would be very interesting to see how these issues play out at a regional level. At the same time, I'm very much interested in exploring the intersections of climate change and human trafficking with respect to other geographies, especially West Africa, East Africa, and the Caribbean small island states. Finally, we are interested in exploring the different impact that climate change has on certain specific groups, such as ethnic minorities, indigenous populations, women, and people with disabilities. So I think these are some of the topics on which Free the Slaves research program will be devoting itself over the next months, years. And I'm encouraging other organizations that are similarly interested in these topics and that value partnerships as much as we do to get in touch, as uh, I'm sure that our research efforts will benefit greatly from uh, joint partnerships. Excellent. Thank you so much for that uh, overview of future research projects, Marta. So I would follow that up. 
with a request for, for anyone in the audience who's working in these spaces and wants to learn more or working in these regions, for example, in the Philippines, to reach out to us, to reach out to myself or to Marta or to Ramsey, and we would be happy to explore how we can work together to address some of these issues. Um, Ramsey, do you have anything else you want to add as we close here? Thank you so much for highlighting that one, Brian, that I think we are very much open to continue this discussion, especially to those who have listened in these podcasts and who are interested to see how these two inter intersections could become potential collaborations uh, between FTS and your organizations. I think we should continue awareness raising and also making use of this research output you know, to become informed with our decision-making in this space of human trafficking and climate change. Excellent. Marta, any final thoughts? I would just there emphasize what Ramsey was saying, and I believe this research is just the first step of many more activities that we should be doing when it comes to the intersection between climate change and human trafficking. So I think that this is just the beginning of many more research projects and actions on the ground to address these very important issues. Well, thank you so much for joining me for this and for all of sharing all of your wisdom. I look forward to talking to you both again on future episodes as this uh, work unfolds in Southeast Asia. Thank you for having us, Brian. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having us, Brian. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations on Modern Slavery, a production of Free the Slaves. You can find out more about our work on our website at freetheslaves.net. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Threads. If you haven't already, click the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app to be notified when new episodes are available. Mm -hmm.